We're in the middle of a series that we call Distinct. And what we're looking in this series is that we're exploring, we're looking at what it is that makes Christianity distinct from other religions on the planet. So in week one, what we did was we looked at God. What does the Bible specifically say about the God of Christianity? And what we found in that first week is that the God of Christianity alone is eternal, alone is all-powerful, and he alone is all-loving Father. And then in week two, we looked at us. We looked at humanity. Because every religion out there enters into that space and tries to answer the questions of origin and design and purpose. Well, Christianity is no different. And what we learn in the Bible is that we alone in all of creation were created by God in God's image. So what that means is that we were created to reflect God's glory. We were created to imitate the character of God. And what we looked at last week was champions. Every religion has a champion. Every religion has a hero. In Christianity, the hero is, Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the champion. He alone is our champion. He is this unique, distinct, one and only God, God the Son, the Son of God, God, man, fully man, fully human, all in one person, who reconciled us to himself, made peace with, between us and God through his sinless life and through his sacrificial sacrifice on the, on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. And what we're looking at this week is messages. Messages. What is unique about the Christian message? What makes the Christian message distinct from all the other religions and the message that they, they put forth out there? we got to understand that the world is filled with all kinds of messages. Everyone has a message. We're in the season of messages. We're in the political season. There's messages coming all over the place. Every politician has a message. Barack Obama had hope and change. Trump, Donald Trump, has make America great again. Ronald Reagan, strength through peace. Every politician has, has an agenda, a platform, a voice, a message that they're trying to get out there. Every business has a message. Every business out there has a message. What do you think commercials are? They're messages. Those are voices out there vying and competing for our heart and our mind and our wallets. Every business has a message. What is Arby's message? We have the meats. Like, what a great message that is because I don't want to go to Sweet Tomatoes. I want to go where the meats are, right? So that's a good message. That's a good one. What about Allstate? You're in good hands with Allstate. Right? Like, you're supposed to feel all warm and fuzzy and good and secure if you happen to have Allstate as your insurance provider. What about L'Oreal? Because I'm worth it. Thank you, L'Oreal. I knew it. I knew that was true. And you just confirmed it because I'm worth it. Thank you for the, for the affirmation because I needed some, some uh, self-righteous, you know, self-valuing there from a cosmetics company. Anyway, every politician, every business out there has a voice. Everyone's trying to sell us something. Everyone's trying to tell us that their agenda, their opinion, their perspective, their platform, their product, their service, that it will make for a better today and a brighter tomorrow. Everything out here has a message. Religions are no different. Every religion has a message. And to let me just generalize it all up, it pretty much all goes something like this. Life here stinks. It, it's filled with a lot of madness and foolish and chaos. Right here, there's a lot of drama and trauma and turmoil and stress and distress. It's just a lot of issues, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. This is what we all deal with, all of us. There are good times here and there, but mostly it's a bunch of mess. However, on the other side, there is a perfect place of eternal bliss and abounding joy and unending calm and rest. And every religion calls that place something different. Heaven, paradise, nirvana, the Dean Dome. Like every religion has a place that they consider, you know, this ultimate reality out there, which is the place to be. And, and that's only part of the message. 
that there is something better out there, beyond us, out there. That's only part of the message. The other part of the message is how you get there. So in a couple of weeks, folks, and some of, the, some of you may be into this, in a couple of weeks what we're going to be doing is specifically looking at heaven. What is distinct about the biblical picture, the Christian picture of heaven? What would that look like? What would that be like? We'll get there in a few weeks. Today, we're looking at what it takes to get to heaven. How do we get there? If there is a place that's so much better than what it is here, we want to make sure that we go there. And so that's what we're, we're looking at this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of, excuse me, to the book of Psalms. And Psalms is pretty much smack dab in the middle of your Bible. If you just open literally to the middle of it, you're probably in the book of Psalms. It's definitely in the Old Testament. And we're going to be camping out in Psalm 14, 15, and 16. And yes, I said that, three chapters in one morning. All right, so all three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. And what we're going to be looking at again is that we're going to get a very clear picture What is the distinction between the Christian message and the message that is offered by other religions? What is it that makes our message different? Now, before I get into what the Bible says about Christianity, let's survey three religions. I wish I had time to do more, but uh, this takes a little bit of time. I picked three that pretty much summarize, encompass what all faiths out there say. So all of them will fit into one of these three pretty nicely. So let's begin with Hinduism. What is the Hindu message? So Hinduism teaches that the ultimate goal is nirvana. Nirvana is the ultimate goal. So that means that you need to come as you are with your heart-shaped box because this world smells like teen spirit, right? And that, that, that's what it means. Some of you got that. Thank you so much. I was actually wondering if anyone would. Thank you. All right, so some of you got it. 90s grunge band. I just listed a bunch of their songs. All right, anyway, moving on. So nirvana is the Hindu version of heaven. That's what they pretty much call that ultimate reality that's so much better out there. And to them, nirvana is having your soul united to Brahman. Brahman is their name for God. But when a Hindu speaks about God, they don't not referring to God in the way that we refer to God. So to the, the Hindu, God is not a personal being. God is an it, an impersonal force, this cosmic, eternal, ever-flowing consciousness out there that just binds the universe together and permeates in and through everything in the universe. That's Brahman. Everything permeates from him. So the goal is to have our souls united to this force, this spiritual energy that that is eternal and that exists out there. When our soul is united to Brahman, we reach moksha, which sounds very Klingon, doesn't it, right? You reach moksha. And what what moksha is, that's the Hindu word for salvation. It literally means liberation. So here's how the Hindu message goes. We're caught in this unending cycle called samsara, this unending cycle of life, death, and rebirth or reincarnation. Life, birth, and rebirth. You keep coming back over and over and over and over again. It's unending. That's samsara, this cycle of life and death. And that the ultimate goal is to be liberated Maksha, to be liberated from samsara so that you can know, so that you're no longer tied to this world because, again, this world is only suffering and pain. And we don't want to be in this world. We want to be in nirvana. We want our, our, our soul united to this energy force. We don't want to be here anymore because this is awful. So let's reach Maksha and be liberated from samsara and be united to Brahman and attain nirvana. That's the Hindu message. And according to Hinduism, we attain this salvation through gaining spiritual knowledge and through devotion to Dharma. Dharma is not a TV show. For those of you that remember Dharma and Greg, I think it was, or something like that. All right, Dharma means spiritual duty, your good deeds, in, a, in other words. So to the Hindu, the way you get to nirvana is by gaining all this spiritual knowledge and by doing all these spiritual religious good deeds. 
if you do enough of that, the gaining of the good knowledge, the doing of the good deeds, eventually your good karma outweighs your bad karma until eventually your bad karma goes away. And you got to consider bad karma is just bad stuff that you do. It builds up. It just builds up bad, like debt. Think of it like debt. You build up bad. Bad, st- bad things you do builds up bad debt. And according to Hinduism, you live millions and millions and millions of times. You lived 8.4 million times before you ever became human. All right? So that's a lot of bad. And then you're here for millions of times, too. So you're adding a lot of bad because all of us do a bunch of bad stuff, right? So eventually, at some point, you start getting it. Oh, I got to learn enough and do enough to outdo millions of lifetimes worth of bad stuff. You got your good karma has to outdo your bad karma. And when you do that, finally, you will have reached moksha. You'll be liberated from samsara. You'll be united to Brahman and you'll attain nirvana. The Hindu message means that there is a heaven. You can reach it. You can attain it. But there is no God who loves you. There is no God who helps you. You're on your own. You figure it out. You do it. That's the Hindu message. What about Mormonism? What's the Mormon message? So according to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we all lived in heaven prior to life here on earth now. And as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, God is an elevated, exalted man who literally is in heaven having relations with millions of spiritual concubines producing spiritual babies. That's us. And then we are sent down from heaven to earth, us, to be tested, to learn obedience, to learn how to obey God. So the goal in Mormonism is to return, you'll hear this if you ever talk to someone who's a Mormon, to return to the Father, to return to heaven, to be close to him who procreated you. That's the goal. And according to Mormonism, salvation requires two things. Number one, it requires the grace of God, and it requires your own actions. So it's grace plus what you bring to the table. So according to the Mormon teaching, the way that we receive grace from God is through Jesus, through his suffering and through his sacrifice on the cross. But to attain the full measure, the full quality, as they put it, the full quality of eternal life, you've got to do your part. You've got to flex your own muscles. You have work to do. The third of the Mormon articles of faith says this. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Did you catch that? That all can be saved through the atonement of Christ. All mankind can be. So Jesus opens the door through what he did on the cross, but it's by obedience to the law. So Jesus opened the door, but you've got to carry your butt through it. You've got to push your way through it. You've got to make sure that you step through that door by being obedient to the laws and the ordinances of the gospel. And part of that means dealing with all of your sin. So what they say is that to be saved, a person must have dealt with all of their sin. And here's how you do that. Nine-step process. This is really easy. Okay, ready? Number one, believe in Jesus Christ. By the way, that's not the same Jesus as evangelical Orthodox Christians believe Jesus to be. It is a completely, radically different individual. They may use the name Jesus. They may say Jesus Christ. But it is not the Jesus that I talk about when I talk about Jesus. I say Jesus is God. They say he's no different than me and you. Big difference. Number two, so you've got to believe in Jesus Christ as they define Jesus. Uh, number two, you've got to be baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because all other churches are completely illegitimate. Any Catholic church, any Baptist church, any Methodist church, any Presbyterian church, Lutheran church, any other church is completely flawed and heretical. Is they would say they've fallen away into apostasy. Is what they would say. Number three, you have to have received the Holy Ghost through the laying on of hands by a person specifically with priesthood authority. Number four, you have to endure all of life's tests while here on earth. So you've got to make sure that you. 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get through all the tests in a good way. Uh, you got to follow the teachings of Christ and his apostles, which, by the way, is not limited to the apostles in the first century. So there are those of us who would say that the apostles lived in the first century, and that was that. Uh, to the Mormon, there, there continue to be apostles today. Number six, you have to keep God's commandments. That's an easy one, so we'll keep going. Uh, number seven, repent of your sin. Eight, undo any wrongs you may commit. Undo any wrongs you commit. That's particularly challenging. Like, so what if I do something wrong to someone and they die? I have no chance of undoing that wrong. What if, and this is probably most often the case, what if I do something wrong to someone and I'm oblivious because I'm ignorant? Right? I just don't know. I didn't even mean to offend them, but I did. I did a wrong. I don't even know about it. I can't undo that wrong because no one told me. Number nine, then you got to treat others the way you want to be treated. So the Mormon message is that sin can be overcome. You can overcome every last bit of it. Um, heaven is attainable, but God's grace and the sacrifice of Jesus are insufficient for your salvation. You've got to muscle it up. You've got to do your part. You've got to add to what God has given. You've got to add to what Jesus has done. You need to obey in order to receive the full quality of eternal life. That's the Mormon message. All right, how about the Muslim message? Islam says that there is a heaven. Their preferred term for it is paradise. So to enter paradise, we must receive salvation and salvation is received by God's grace. Huh. Well, that sounds awfully Christian. They, you know, they, they don't say God so much as Allah. They say, but you receive salvation by Allah or through Allah's grace. That sounds very Christian. But what we have to understand is that the Islam version of grace is very different than the Christian version of grace. In Islam... Allah bestows grace upon those who have inner belief and who do good works. You receive grace only after you believe a certain thing and do certain things. Grace comes after faith, and grace comes after works, according to Islam. To, to quote a Muslim, and I got this directly from a Muslim, he says, he, referring to Allah, is the all-merciful, he is mercy, he is compassionate, all-forgiving, but only for those who deserve it. That's a different understanding than the Christian understanding of grace, is it not? In essence, in Islam, they, they consider grace to be a reward. A, a, a Muslim will never, ever say you can earn God's grace. They'll say the opposite. You cannot earn God's grace or how can we but they say that you have to put yourself in a position where then God if he so chooses to be gracious toward you can be gracious toward you so you got you'll be judged according to your sincere repentance you'll be judged according to your good deeds measured to the degree by which you adhere to God's laws which they call sharia you probably hear that term in the news a lot that's just God's word that's what it means in, in, in Islam God's commandments and if you do all of that, you, in essence, receive this reward of grace. You receive grace as a reward. You have to be qualified. You have to put yourself in a position where God can be, if he so chooses, gracious toward you. Now, how do you do that in Islam? Well, you have to adhere to what they call the five pillars. The five pillars in Islam. Number one, belief. You have to have the right belief. They have a statement of faith. In Islam, this is like your conversion statement. I bear witness to this truth. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So that's kind of like your, your, your creed that you enter into the Islamic faith with. So you got to believe that. Number two, you got to pray. You got to pray five times a day, kneeling on the ground, putting your, your forehead to the ground, facing Mecca, praying five times a day every day. You got to fast. So once a year during, during Ramadan, during a, a month-long celebration, religious uh, celebration, you fast for the entire month from dusk till dawn. So half the day, 12 hours of the day in essence, you're, you're fasting that whole month. Number four, charity. You've got to give a percentage of your income to the poor and needy. 
And then the last one is pilgrimage. You've got to go to Mecca at least one time in your life. Those are the five pillars. And to have a chance, just an opportunity, to maybe have God be gracious toward you, you've got to be fully devoted to all five of these. And you may be so, and you get to the final judgment, and at best you can just hope that God is gracious to you. Because you can't earn it. But you better have done those things if you desire to go to heaven. That's the Islamic message. Now, let's compare that to the Christian message, the biblical message. First of all, we believe in heaven, do we not? We believe that there is a life and existence beyond this one, which is just perfect bliss and perfect peace and it's wonder, and it's delight, and it's streets of gold, and it's just orchards, orchards of bacon-covered trees. Like, it's just massive amounts of goodness just growing on trees, crispy bacon, chewy bacon, candied bacon, chocolate-covered bacon, all kinds of bacon just on trees. We'll see. We'll check in a couple weeks to see if that's true. All right, but anyway, it's this beautiful, wonderful place. We'll learn more about it in a few weeks today. How do we get there? How do we get there? So we begin in Psalm 14. Psalm 14, we're going to read the first three verses. It says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So God is in heaven sitting upon his throne, and he looks down on humanity. He looks down on us, and he begins an evaluation. And as he's looking at us, he sees what we're doing and what we're not doing. He hears the words that are coming out of our mouth. He knows our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, our attitude. He sees it all. It's completely unpacked before God's eyes. And God reaches a conclusion. The verdict is, we, us, we are all sinners. We're all sinners. There's not one that does good. What do you mean, Rick? Last week, I helped an elderly lady cross the street. Well, this isn't referring to to our capacity to do a generous, kind deed on occasion to someone to give blood at a blood bank or food to the food pantry or to do a host of a number of other nice charitable activities. What this is referring to is that we are so marred by sin that our supposed good deeds are contaminated. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted Garment. In other words, it's like trying to wash a window with a dirty rag. Like, how far is that going to get us? We can't clean it. We can't wash it clean. It can't be done. Hindus don't believe that we are sinners. According to the Hindu, um, we're simply a manifestation of Brahman. Like, our soul is part of this spiritual, eternal, perfect force. So, we don't sin. We do bad things, but we're not sinners. And a Mormon will never say that we're sinners. We do sin, but we're not sinners. Because we're created by God and God's image up in heaven, and we're born there, and we're just down here for a test. So we do sin, but we're not sinners. It's what the Mormon would say. And I think that the Bible paints a very distinct picture. That the reality is like from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Folks, that's not just talking about what we do. Let me read that again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. To pile on Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of God. And if you read at all, if you, if you watch the news at all, if you listen to debates at all, there is more and more this growing sentiment that there is no such thing as sin, that we are not sinners. We're just people that are doing our best and just sometimes do some things maybe we shouldn't do. Like the, the, the culture at large, there's less and less people that believe in sin and that we are sinners. People actually have a hard time even referring to evil as evil. There is no such thing as evil. They just need a pharmaceutical. Right? It's just, it's just something else that's going there. But there's no evil in the world. And I would ask those folks, to like, look at the world around us. It's in flames. Our world is burning down. There's wars on the planet that you don't even know about. We just happen to hear about a few of them. There's conflict everywhere. There is oppression everywhere. There's people right now that are, that are out there and they're getting raped. There's children that are being stolen from mom and dad and being sold into sex trafficking. There's millions of babies. There's a baby right now losing its life, its unborn birth life right now. Just a few days ago, senseless crime out west in Oregon. person takes a, uh, some weapons and goes onto a campus and starts shooting. Evil is alive and well. I mean, it's just heartbreak. And you don't even have to go to those extremes. Like, wh- look at what we do to one another. The, the, har- the, the heartache that a husband brings to a wife or children to their parents. Wow, like, it's, it's devastating. One word, one word just will absolutely rip someone's heart out. It doesn't even have to be a word. You can get a look from someone. Just one look from a person can absolutely just wreck your soul. Look at the world around us. I, I'd say that, that evil is Roman free. Back in the 1800s, the, the philosophers and these enlightened individuals started predicting this human utopia that would be ushered in because we're so refined and so enlightened. And look at how modern we are. And then here comes World War I, World War II, next war, the next war, the next war. Here we are in the 21st century. We are no closer to a utopia on the planet now than we ever were, ever before. And why is that? Why, why is this the reality? Why is there so much suffering in the world? You know, back in May 11th of 2000, there's a lady. She's sitting at her desk. She's watching her, looking at her computer, and she, an email popped up. And... The subject line said, I love you. Aw. Right? Well, that's, that seems kind of nice. Doesn't matter that I don't know who it was sent from. So curiosity got the best of her, and she clicked open that email. And with that one click, it gave birth, literally, to one of the most devastating computer viruses that the planet has ever known. In a matter of moments, that virus spread from computer to computer. Businesses shut down. Organizations shut down. Millions of computers crashed. One virus. One computer virus. And the reality is that the human condition is no different than that. We've been infected with a virus. We've been infected with a virus. And it's led to the crash of our entire race. The virus is called sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they opened up the wrong stinking email. It was a lie. They should have they known who was sending it, and it came from, from the devil himself. They opened up the wrong email, and they willfully disobeyed God's explicit command. Do not eat of that one tree. No, you can eat that. And so they willfully disobeyed God. And in so doing, sin enters the world, death along with it, darkness along with it. And now we're all infected with sin. Like it it runs amok in each of us individually and throughout the human family because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And that explains why there's so much turmoil and heartbreak. That explains why the world is on fire, literally. That explains why there's so much drama and and tears and crying and devastation, depression and addiction, all of it. One virus spread by one to the rest of us. And to make matters worse, Sin deserves a punishment. God has been very clear from the beginning that the wages of sin is death. 
When you eat of that one fruit, you shall surely die, is what the Lord said. And, and what that means, that death is eternal separation from God, judgment for God on account of our, of our sin. And the bad news is that so long as there's any sin in us, we cannot go to heaven. God cannot abide in sin. God is light and there is no darkness in him. It has to be dealt with. It has to be judged. He won't let it pass by. You know, and it's, it's not just that sin keeps us from the presence of God or keeps us from heaven. It's actually worse than that. Because heaven, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, sin punches our one-way ticket to hell. Which is, which is what separation from God is. It's a place where there is no goodness and there is no light and there's no kindness, there's no love. It's a complete opposite of God. And, and we think, well, it's just a little white lie. It's just, it's just one little decimal point on my taxes. It's not that big a deal. I'm not cheating the government. They've got enough money. They've they got enough of my money. And it's, it's not that, I know we qualify our sin. Well, it's, it's not that bad or it's not as bad in so-and-so. But in God's eyes, it's all the same. And it's so vile, like every little act of sin is so vile that God says, I have to create a place that's just for that, that's completely away from me. And so long as there's any of that sin in us, there is no way we go to heaven. No way. Clearly, we've got to get rid of this sin, right? That's very active and alive of us. It's got to get shed from us. Good news is, there's a way to get rid of the sin. How? Wait for it. Wait for it. Through sinless perfection. Through sinless perfection. This is, the, this is what Scripture tells us. Some of you are probably just kind of got raised up a little bit. Just follow me here. Just let me, just let me speak a little bit longer. Just let me go a little bit further. Let's read Psalm 15. We're going to read the whole psalm. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who, Lord, can come into your presence? Who can go to heaven? And the answer is, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Wait a minute. How do I get to heaven? Well, be blameless, speak truth. Do what is right. Keep going. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money, put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be Move. The answer to the question of how you get to heaven is given in Psalm 15. Sinless perfection. Total, complete, 100% obedience to all of God's ordinances, commands, and precepts from the moment of birth to the moment we breathe our last breath. Well, hallelujah, we got an answer to the question. This is good news, right? We want to get to heaven. Well, it tells us right here is be perfect. Be sinless. Be completely sinless. It's clear there in the chapter. Just don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't look at porn. Don't smoke the weed. Don't slander. Don't malice. Don't throw, don't throw temper tantrums. Keep your temper under control at all times fully. Never lose it. Don't cuss anyone out. Don't shoot someone to birth. Be nice. Always be loving and forgiving at all times. Be kind and compassionate. Hey, give to those who are in need. Just do that all the time. All the time. And you got this all day. You got that. I'm telling you right now what it takes to get to heaven. Man, this is nice. Look, here's the roadmap. This is good stuff. Exodus 19.5. God is speaking. He said, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my, my treasured possession among all peoples right there guys like you want to go to heaven you want to be my possession you want me to be your god and you my people that's sweet just obey it all perfectly 100 percent. you got this you got this you know people are smiling because you've been in church long enough and you kind of know where i'm going and, and maybe you know scripture well enough and so people are smiling uncomfortably because what if what rick's saying is true 
Because then we just read in Psalm 14 that none of us is good and none of us is righteous and none of us seeks after God. Well, if that's true, then how can I do Psalm 15? And if there's any honesty in our lives, if we just evaluate just one day of our lives, let alone an entire span of our life, just one day, what about one hour? Just evaluate one hour. Can you say that you went one hour without any sinful thought, word, deed, or action? And not just that you didn't do the bad, but that you, instead of doing the bad, you did all the good along with it. Psalm 15 asks the impossible of it, does, impossible of us, does it not? So is there any hope for us? You're a sinner. You can't work your way into heaven. What's the hope? And folks, I want you to know this morning that there is hope and there is hope upon hope. There is abounding hope and eternal hope and it's found strictly, exclusively, distinctly in the grace of God. I, I love how Scripture is laid out. Psalm 14 paints this terrible picture. Psalm 15 doesn't help us too much more. And then you go to Psalm 16 and read the first two verses. Preserve me, O God, for I for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What happens in Psalm 16, after understanding how sinful he is, the psalmist, and understanding what is required to be in God's presence, all he can do is throw himself at the mercy of God. All he can do is ask for God to be gracious to him, for him to, to take refuge in God, because I can't do good but he is good. He is good. What makes Christianity distinct is the message. And it is a message of grace. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. Of all the religions on the planet, this is our distinctive truth. Grace. And only grace. Grace is not earned. It is not a reward. It is given. It is a gift offered freely from the heart of God to anyone who desires it. To anyone who desires it. You know, in John chapter 11, there's a story. There's a man, man named Lazarus. He dies. They bind him up in the grave clothes. They throw his body in the tomb. Two days later, Jesus shows up. Jesus stands outside. He cries in a loud voice, Lazarus! Come on out. And my boy came on out. He was dead for two days. And what's funny in the story is that he's still wrapped in the grave clothes. Like he's doing this to come out of the grave because he's wrapped up in the linens. He comes up. Let me ask you, did Jesus need any help from Lazarus to make that happen? He was dead. There was nothing that he could do to help Jesus bring him back to life. That's grace that's a picture of grace right there there was nothing he could do he was dead the grace of god and the power of god is completely sufficient in and of itself god needs no help from anyone from anyone ephesians chapter 2 starting like in verse 4 it says but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ when we were dead he made us alive by grace you have been saved for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast it is by grace alone, period. Period. I've, I've shared this story before. This is about a year and a half ago. Uh, Emmett was about, I'm going to say about 16 months at the time. And he's crawling around. And we always put the gate up at the bottom of the stairs because we don't want him crawling up the stairs for obvious reasons. 
And my office at the house is right at the very top of the stairs. It's the only thing upstairs. It's my office. And there's a door immediately. You hit that landing, that top step, and the door is right there. Well, one day, I didn't put the gate up. And Emmett's 16 months old. And I'm in my office, and the door's closed, and, and I hear some rustling at the door. I'm like, what is that? And I opened up the door. And in that moment, I mean, just fear. Like, it's amazing how instantaneous the fear was because there's no space. Like, anything, one little movement, and he'll fall backwards. So I instantly reached down to grab him. But when I opened the door, the first thing he did was look up at me, which threw his balance off. And so there goes Emmett, tumbling head over heel, backwards down the stairs. And I can remember it, man, it's so distinct how clearly I remember I'm chasing him down the stairs. And I'm reaching for him as fast as I possibly can, just seeing him every step, every step. And I can't get to him. I can't get to him. And then there's that, that terrible crash at the bottom. And folks, you understand that that's literally a picture of our condition? That because we're in sin, we are tumbling head over heels down the steps, and there is nothing we can do to stop ourselves. And we're heading down the steps, and we're heading toward this eternal crash at the bottom. And while I may not be fast enough to have rescued and swooped and rescued Emmett, God is. Jesus came down and he has swooped down to catch us, to stop us, to rescue us, to keep us from that fall, to keep us from crashing at the bottom. And that is precisely what he did on the cross. The cross is a safety net. It's Jesus saying, I've got you. Just come to me. I've got you. You need not crash. I'll crash on your behalf. That's love. That's the grace. That's the grace of God coming down. You know, earlier I did say that it requires sinless perfection in order to get to heaven. And that is the truth. But it's not our sinless perfection. It is the sinless perfection of Jesus that saves us. Not ours. It's not our sinless perfection. Jesus came down from heaven the Son of God, and he lived, though he was tempted in every way, he lived a sinless life as our representative. He lived the life we're supposed to live. He did it in our place. He obeyed perfectly. He's sinless perfection. And then he went to a cross, and on that cross he says, I'll take your sin. Give me all your shame, all your guilt, every, every bad thing you've ever said or done, I've got it. I will take it completely off of you. And he grabs it away from us, our addictions, everything, our brokenness, everything, all our malice and our hatred, all of it. He says, I will take it. I will take it. And he did that, that we may receive his Christ righteousness. You know, it says in Scripture that he who knew no sin became sin, that we may become the righteousness of God. So you see how it does take sinless perfection to get to heaven, but praise God, it's not ours. Praise God, it is the sinless perfection of his son Jesus that gets us to heaven. And now all who place their faith in Christ, every person that will just simply believe that Jesus is who he is and that he did what is, every person, you will be forgiven of everything. You'll be forgiven of everything. Like, he'll take your burdens away from you. He'll replace darkness with light. If you just repent of your sin and just give your life over to Christ, man, he, it's a brand new life. It's a brand new world. A life after this one in a beautiful, beautiful heaven. Anyone who gives their life to Christ will be saved for salvation is of the Lord. You know, that... This, there is no better message than the Christian message. It's a message of grace, and it goes like this. Jesus looks out at every one of us, and he says, All you who are weary, all you who need rest, all of you who are beat down, I got this. Just come, all of you, and I will give you eternal 
rest. It is an invitation unlike any in this world. There is nothing like this invitation that Jesus offers to every person on the planet. I will take all the bad away from you. I will bless you. You were once fatherless. I will be a father to you. I will guide you. I'll be your shepherd. I'll help steer you. I'll provide. You know those those trying moments? I'll be with you every step of the way. Well, well, don't I don't I have to do something first to get right? No, no, no. Just just believe. Well, don't I have to be good enough for it? No. <laughs> You're not. I am. Just believe. And I will give you rest. So the, the question for all of us is, have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you truly believe in who he is? Does your, your assurance rest solely in the grace of God? Or are you a Hindu or a Mormon or a Muslim who say, no, I've got to, or I've got to do it. God's grace isn't enough. I've got to do it. Which one are you? Are you distinctly Christian? Are you mixing, inadvertently mixing these other religions into the pure faith of the gospel? You know, if, if you've never accepted Christ as Savior, folks, you could do this right now where you are sitting. Just do business with the Lord. Just confess that you're a sinner and that you need Christ and place your faith in Him. Repent of your sin and you will receive new life. That's it. That's how much God loves you. He cannot make it any easier. He cannot make it any simpler. Believe in the power of Jesus through the cross and through his resurrection, and you will be saved. You will receive grace. And if you have received God's grace in the past, what do you do? Be distinct. Be distinct in this world. Be an anthem for the glory of God in this world. Be a missionary here at home as you go about your business. Be a witness for Christ. Share with others this wonderful news, this beautiful message that we all know is true. Serve the community. Be a blessing. Be distinct. Be different. Be a light on a hill. And not just individually, but collectively, folks, corporately, all of us, together as a church, May may our church be distinct because of the grace of God that has been infused into our very DNA, right? Serving with one another, doing everything that we can with one another, giving to promote the gospel. Serving in in the ministries, helping out at Crate Myrtle, going on a trip to Haiti next year, whatever it may be, whatever we do, together, be a distinct people in this town. Walking across the street to talk to neighbors. Taking dinner to brothers and sisters in Christ to give them a break. Just be distinct. I mean, if we've received such a beautiful gift from God, how can we not be gracious toward others? They hurt me, forgive them. Just as you've been forgiven much, forgive much. Well, how gracious should I be? Well, how gracious has Jesus been to you? Folks, let's be distinct. Let's be different. There is nothing like the Christian message. I'm going to ask everyone just to, to bow your heads and close your eyes where you are and for you to respond where you are. And just the questions are this. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Are you truly a follower of Jesus? If you search your heart and you find that the answer, that you answer that no, please, just right now where you are, ask for God's grace. Ask for God's forgiveness. He will forgive you of anything and everything. You cannot out the grace of God. If you are someone who's a follower of Jesus, you've decided, whether it was yesterday or 20 years ago, whenever it was, that to receive grace and to believe in Christ, have you been living a distinct life? 
Have you been living as someone who's been touched by the grace of God? Have you been living like someone who knows the love of Christ? Can people around you, can they note that there's something distinct about you because of this grace that you have tasted? Where, where do you need to be different? Where do you need to be a better imitator of Jesus? Father, you could not, you could not have made it any easier for us to know you. You could not have gone to greater lengths to show us how much you love us. What amazing, divine grace there is that you provide to anyone who so desires to have it. Lord, you desire that we not stay in our sin. You desire that we not stay brokenhearted. You desire that we not stay in our immorality, in darkness, lost and confused. Lord, no, you desire to bring clarity to us, to brighten our eyes that we may look upon you. You desire for us to know you, for us to know that we will spend eternity with you. You desire us to know your grace. And all it takes is one step from us, Lord. And I pray, and even that, you give us the conviction, Lord. And I'm praying now that you would give us all in this room that, that conviction, whether it's for the first time to embrace Jesus as Lord, to turn away from, from life as we've known it, Lord, and give our lives to you, Lord. May that be the conviction of someone this morning. For the rest of us, Lord, there are steps of grace for all of us to take. To serve our our brothers and sisters, to serve our community, to, to extend favor toward others, to help the needy, to give to the poor. Lord, even now, everyone, we all live different lives, Lord, convict us specifically of steps that we should be taking to live out this distinct life of grace that you have so generously provided to us. Lord, we praise you for the cross. We praise you for the wonderful cross of Jesus through which we receive life. Our sin was paid for. Thank you for that cross where those words were spoken, it is finished. May those words inspire in us through your spirit, Lord, a life that is not finished, but that is now just begun. A life living in your spirit. Living for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.